newly discovered resources, we have a new trade route, and we have rapidly decreasing sea ice, which all seems like a bit of a recipe for friction. What do you think? I think we do. We have one other problem. We have melting land ice. Do we? Give it a go. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the state of it. Sitting here with Dad again. It's a lovely little, what, Monday evening? Monday afternoon, actually. He's been out and about, um, so I haven't been able to do it that much today. But we're going to move on to our first question. So today we're going to look at a bit of climate change, but mostly Russia and the Arctic. So, Dad, the Arctic ice, melting due to climate change, has opened up a viable northern passage very, very recently for the first time in history. Russia is recommending this northern passage. It is quicker with the route from China to Rotterdam being 10 days shorter when compared to the Suez route, and cheaper due to less fuel being used. On top of that, the Northern Passage would avoid global choke points like Malacca, Suez, the Cape of Good Hope, and Gibraltar, which could disrupt global trade like we've seen pretty recently with the whole evergreen situation. So, do you think that the Northern Passage route is a good route for global trade, as the Russians are saying, or does it have its own dangers? Well, the danger comes from why it's becoming a viable route, and that is climate change. In the summer, it's open, and in the winter, it's sometimes not open. Great for shipping, as long as you don't want to play the Russian toll, but not so good in terms of the big message. Do you think that there's something to be said, or some concern to be had, given that this shipping route goes almost solely along the Russian coast, whereas the one that currently is used by global trade goes through many different countries. So that would give Russia a lot of control over this route. A huge control. I mean, the same way. So let's look at the choke points you mentioned earlier when you come out of the South China Sea. Um, but you can you could avoid the Malacca Straits by going out and round it. You can't avoid going through the Suez Canal, as we found out with the evergreen problem. It's very easily blocked. A simple, simple ship hijacked by a state or an organization at the onset of a war would block it for good, blow it up, sink it. You're not going to use that then all the ships have to go the longer route around the Cape of Good Hope. And that suddenly makes South Africa once more strategically very important. And if it isn't controlled by the West, if for some reason the CCP's influence of the ANC manifests in control and surprising control, you've just lost your ability to get anything from the east to the Atlantic Ocean. So this second route, the opening of the Arctic Northern Passage, is a critical route, and it's going to be very attractive. It's quicker by 10 days, it saves fuel, but as you quite rightly say, it's heading into Russian territory. And the Russians have probably put the most energy into controlling that region. The Canadians have been trying to, thinking about it. The Americans have posited having a fleet, but you're talking about a different kind of fleet. It needs to have ice-breaking capabilities for that transient period between winter and summer. It needs to be operating in different environments. And all of those things really haven't been put on the list for the U.S. Navy that's busy trying to contain the Chinese from moving out of the South China Seas. So I think it's a very delicate, very dangerous kind of situation where it's a critically important trade route controlled by Putin and Russia and their access to the resources underneath, too. So, yes, it's looking like it's shaping up rather rather positively for the Russians and less so for everyone else. Icebreaking capacity and capability be a massive part of being able to have this passage open to shipping. Do you know much about the capability of Russian, American and Chinese icebreakers at the moment? Well, the Russians have more of them and they tend to be nuclear-powered operated for sustained operations because their northern ports have been ice-bound. So they've been used to living in ice-bound conditions. But the, you know, the United States hasn't had to go there apart from expeditionary scientific curiosity, whereas for Russia it was a necessity. 
So they're far ahead of that process, and it would require warships that can do the same. And so, yes, there's an evolution of ship design in the transition between open, closed, IC, not closed, when the passage works, that is, is, is necessary. But given 10 or 15 years at the rate we're going, there won't be any transitory ice because we'll be in more problems. But it's a transitory period that the Russians are particularly well-placed for. Well, actually, it's quite interesting you say that because I think Arctic ice is apparently on the on the out quite quickly i think it's heating up twice as quickly as anywhere else in the world according to a 2018 survey by the university of manitoba but anyway moving on we'll come on to that later moving on to natural resources in the arctic the wealth of the arctic is immense and arte a german broadcasting service described it as the el dorado of the world it's estimated that it actually holds a third of global coal and oil reserves what effect will this newfound source of wealth and fuel have on global politics well, I mean, Russia's already you know, has a massive resource base in terms of gas and oil, and their oil is quite cheap actually to to pull out the ground because it's you know basically land based oil and it's not very deep. So, for the Russians, adding a different kind of oil source, which is more like a North Sea oil source, expensive and and that requires a lot of infrastructure to pull out at these price levels, no difference. But if we end up with a super commodity cycle, as I think, going through the roof in the next four or five years, then prices could go through the roof with it and make those attractive resources. Most importantly, Russia's control over those resources deny them to anyone else. And really, Russia is a commodity producing country. And the less um, options available to buyers than going straight to Russia the less power Russia has. So it's not just, it's really biggest play is denying the opposition the resources and access to them. I think talking about Russia's control of the resources is important there, as you just said. Um, I know the Chinese are already building up a bit of a reliance on Russian natural gas taken from the Arctic region. There's a Baltic pipeline planned to feed natural gas from Russia from the Arctic fields to Germany that is coming up. Um, do you think this poses a bit of a threat to Europe if Europe has to rely on Russian natural gas in the well, event of political the conflict of interest. It's called Nord Stream 2. And Merkel has been absolutely hell-bent on making that work. And the Americans have been very concerned and done everything they can do to persuade the Germans not to do it, including sanction dynamics, which sanctioned German companies involved in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But it's still going ahead. And Merkel sees her legacy as Nord Stream 2. And what it does is it gives Putin immense power over Europe. And it means that Germany's independence from Russian action and provocation is significantly reduced inside the NATO alliance. And Putin has been really smart. You know, he needs various markets. He needs to sell his product to keep his country going. And he knows that by feeding product when he is up, 80 or 90% of an export market to that country, he now has control because he can turn the taps off. So I think it's an alarming situation when there are other options that could have been looked at, gas coming from different regions. I think it's a fundamental mistake. Do you think this will bind or the Chinese reliance on Russian natural gas? Do you think it will bind those two countries closer together in their alliance? Well, I think it's quite an interesting one. I think Putin's, Putin has got an interesting dynamic. He's sold to China because it's a big economy and therefore a big market. And he's sold to China because he doesn't really like the West. But he also knows that ultimately, if the West doesn't exist to balance China, 
the next thing the Chinese will do is take his resources, especially in the East, where it's quite difficult to defend them. So he's living in a very difficult paradigm with a knife on either side of a strider knife. Um, and his paradigm is not dissimilar to Stalin's with Germany growing up alongside it. How do you grow uh, and survive long enough to become stronger, defend, you know, off the opposition? It's a difficult place for Putin. The meeting with Biden had more positive carrots embedded in it for, to try and bring Putin into the Western sphere of influence. And if that is effectively done, and one of the key areas I think was, I would postulate was discussed was about the origins of the virus. And if I was by now, I would have said, you know, you think you have an alliance with China, but our evidence is it comes from a laboratory and they haven't told you about it. And furthermore, they gave you the virus too. And the net effect is you suffered and you, they call you, you think you have an ally. Is that really the case? And I think that was one of the key reasons and the enticement to share intelligence information between Russia and America around the origins of the virus was, I think, one of the reasons why Biden sought that rapprochement. So, yes, if that works and Nord Stream 2 is in place and the, and the Russians flip, then that was a good call by Merkel. And but, but also now Russia has China in its hands in terms of energy resilience. But that also makes Russia a, a target to secure the resource chains of China. And that has to be in Putin's mind. It's a real double-edged sword. Well, we have newly discovered resources, we have a new trade route, and we have rapidly decreasing sea ice, which all seems like a bit of a recipe for friction. What do you think? I think we do. We have one other problem. We have melting land ice. <laughs> do we? We do. I didn't know that. Yeah. But the Arctic has... Oh, no, you're right. You're so, right with Greenland. Yeah, so, so, so essentially... When, this is important that people don't, this is a dimension they miss, is when sea ice melts, sea level remains the same because the ice displaces the water for its mass. But if you melt land ice, like Greenland or, you know, the Antarctic, then essentially sea level rises. And if all the land ice in the world melts, sea level will rise by about 150 meters. And that's got to be the biggest threat mankind faces. Yes, Climate change affects the atmosphere, but the implications of climate change to land ice melting, that's really where the metal hits the road. Bringing it back very quickly and just for the last question, not involving climate change, back to a bit of military friction. Um, already, Russia has, has reoccupied a Soviet base on Franz Josef land and stuffed it full of weapons and men. And on top of that, Russia's allowed the BBC to film their Arctic Brigade for the first time ever, which sends a message that they're willing to defend this newly available gold mine of a region that is the Arctic. The US has also ramped up its military presence, deploying bombers in the Arctic on training missions from Norway. Do you think this is a flash in the pan, or will this trend of military tension continue to increase in the months and years ahead as more and more of the Arctic becomes uncovered? Well, let's look at it from another perspective. As the Arctic opens up and the seas become traversable by warships and um, the US Navy in particular, all of a sudden that long winding coastline to the north of Russia becomes a huge liability because the Americans can move forces close to the coastline if they fight their way in and access Russia in a completely different way. So if you're just being objective, there's a bit of a challenge there. And the answer is you use area denial weapons, long-range surface-to-surface systems and surface-to-air systems to, to take out airplanes to force the enemy a long way off the coastline so they can't access it. So there was a genuine perspective that even if you were a neutral 
nation seeking to protect yourself with a sense of paranoia, you would want to defend that coastline, which is what we see. But then the extension of that by implication is those very same systems give control, as you said, over the new trade route. So they are the one and the same mental process. What differentiates defense versus offense and advantage is once those systems are in place, how they're used. Do they force people to pay tariffs? Do they stop nations and ships of nations that have offended Putin or Russia at some stage? Because that's when defense becomes offense. The trouble is you won't know until it's all there, and you won't know until the wrong moment. If, as you say, the Russians started to stop people if they disagreed with certain political views or whatever, that would just cause people to take the Suez route. Because there, there's always going to be that alternative route. It, it, so it, it, surely it, that is not necessarily eventuality that would, would occur, but, you know, unless in war. It would, but there's a great deal of attraction. So you block the Suez route. Now they have to go around you know, the Cape of Good Hope. And then all we've got to do is put a whole lot of submarines off the Cape of Good Hope and nothing gets through. So all of a sudden, the route between East and West is really in control. Russia has control over that route. And its submarines are capable of transiting and operating down in the Cape of Good Hope. Suddenly, the route to power comes through the route to the trade routes. And the Russians are well positioned for that. And that's, after all, what great hegemonic sea power represents, the ability to get freedom of the seas and freedom for trade access. And you remove that or you control it and you become a hegemonic naval power, even though you don't have a particularly big fleet. And they're still, the Russians are very clever. They don't do things randomly. And I think in the West, we, we underestimate the strategy. And yes, Putin is opportunistic tactically, but his tactical opportunistic moves have advanced his strategic picture enormously. So I think we should never underestimate Putin. And at the same time, he must understand the difficult position he's in with China. And the trick now is to seduce, to help, to bring Russia back into the Western fold. And if you think that in World War II, we worked with Stalin and Stalin was a pretty evil individual. And Putin isn't a charming, lovely human being, but he is mild compared to Stalin. So the imperative of working with Russia that is, after all, European in construct and, and you know, and, and social architecture, I think is very appealing at this, this stage, if we can pull it off, as long as Putin then respects certain boundaries of behavior within the framework of that constructive alliance. Militarily, which country is best placed or more prepared to deal with Arctic warfare at this point in time? You have to give it to the Russians because they've operated in those areas. It's been their home territory anyway. And they've had to operate naval forces throughout, you know, like the Mamansk, going back to the Mamansk convoys. It's their environment. What about the Canadians? Yes, to some degree. And the Canadians, interesting enough, the Canadians, you know, quietly behind the scene have decided to build a, a frigate force, which essentially is going to be 15 frigates, which are Type 26 enhanced frigates, which are more capable than our frigates. And basically, they're going to be a comparable 70% size of our frigate and destroyer force. So the Canadians have worked out the sea power is what it's all about. Moving on to climate change, because I know you've been absolutely rearing to go for this bad boy all, all episode. Climate change is making all of this possible. In 2018, that University of Manitoba expedition found that it was warming up, or the Arctic was warming up twice as fast as everywhere else. And the Arctic is set to be free from sea ice somewhere in between 2030 and 2040. Do you think the countries surrounding the Arctic, you know, Russia, Canada, the US, Denmark, Norway, are doing enough to prevent climate change? Like, do you think they actually care? 
Well, boom. Deep question. question. Do you like how I pause there it, before it, I said it? it? Well, your boom question. <laughs> but, um, it's not just. Well, obviously, America borders it. Canadian da- Canada does. Russia's selling the hydrocarbons. Other people burn. In answer to your question, no one is doing enough. Basically, yes, countries like Britain have made the green construct with their modus operandi. And that's a huge advance. And I think what it's done is it's, it's basically put people back into a state of it's under control because governments are focusing on becoming green. The magnitude of the problem is completely underestimated, as I mentioned. And in fact, really, I would only feel comfortable if we were at a state where the technology was extracting the CO2 we'd already put in, because it's the only way we're going to get through this. So it's no use, even if we just stopped emitting everything today, what I said earlier just needs to sink in, I believe, based on the ice cores. And the reason why climate models don't work well is because there are so many variables, they can't put all the variables in. So you want to find a single measure of what's going on in the climate, a bit like a car with a speedo. And take the speedo out, try and imagine what it's doing. You have a lot of variables, the car shaking, how fast, the vibration, how much fuel it's using. But the speedo tells you in one go how fast you're going. The analogy is the climate models are everything but the speedo. The CO2 temperature relationship of the ice cores is the speedo. And that speedo is very clear about where we are. We have to start taking the CO2 out. Negative emissions to survive the changes we built in. And I think the challenge that comes to it, and it's going to be much quicker than most models. Most models are quite linear. And the truth is that, or the reality, I believe, is that we're in a hockey stick of change. And the rate of change of climate and ice melt and everything else is going to be so much faster than we appreciate because they're using linear projections on a curve that's actually exponential in the way it changes. So we've got a lot to do. And I think with the great power challenges with China, Russia playing agitator, superimposed upon this climate change dynamic we have mankind has a huge amount on its plate right now i loved your use of the old hockey stick there i took me a second to get it but i quite like the kind of curve that shoots up yeah. um so with this co2 theory i know you're quite big on this where would you store all this co2 that's been taken out of the atmosphere or where would the company that you know of store well, the well, co2 i mean you know as you know i did some work with a really super super company called clean energy systems who pioneered the process of burning you know dirty gases and ending up with carbon dioxide and water and energy and basically you sequester the carbon dioxide back down depleted oil wells um, and or large salt dopes so you stuff it back in the ground under pressure and you remove it now um, that's an energy creating system that takes the carbon dioxide and doesn't release it we need to go further and actually extract carbon dioxide And if you're thinking about technologies we really need, we need giant systems sitting all over the place which extract carbon dioxide, put it back in the ground, create positive credits for that activity, and people then that are emitting basically then need to basically pay carbon credits. The best carbon credit system in the world is based in California. The Europeans don't have anything close to it, and you need to allow for carbon sinks, so you need to give people credit for getting it underground. And then someone, if he wants to go and fly the airplane from New York to London, has to pay for the carbon they emit. And this company keeps shoving all the carbon back in the ground, getting the credits and selling them to the others. And you need to do it in such a degree that creates an excess. And that excess then has to be paid for by the government because ultimately systems will become cleaner and there's a system to carry on beyond the fact that we become carbon neutral and we don't use it anymore. But we have to start doing that. And so I think um, the system's already there. 
I don't think it should be a European system because it doesn't work. I think it should be a California system that's exported all the way around the world to anyone who wants to subscribe to, to the carbon um, neutral and the carbon negative paradigm. Realistically, what are the chances that some of the worst worst culprits, like the big countries, America, Russia, China. European countries, China, what are the chances they're actually going to do anything about this? Okay. And the until thing, they see the so, climate actually so, change so, in front so, of so, us. So, so my theory has always been that the climate event that's going to make the world wake up is the inundation of capital cities on the littoral coastline. Such as? New York, London, Chinese cities. What about London flood barrier? Or the, the big the, barrier, whatever it's the called. The big barrier that has a couple of inches on the day <laughs> left. I think, I think the reality is <laughs> it's pretty scary. What he means, you know, like a super spring tide and a northerly wind funneling water into the, into the southern part of the North Sea and into the Thames estuary. And, and then essentially somewhere along the line and a low, really deep low pressure system, if it gets inundated, there's nothing on the other side of it. And right now we're sort of on the edge of that. And then if you want to go and think about what you need to do to make that better, you need to make taller barriers, and then you need to make the coastline all the way around the barrier higher. There's a huge amount of flood defencing that needs to be done. And I suggest, just like the New Orleans, the flood barriers and the levees won't be maintained. So it'll be when a capital city gets inundated, or one or two of them, we realise that we really are in trouble in terms of our littoral civilizations being a threat to the ice melting process. And I think that's the thing that will really trigger a quantum change in our thought process. Well, cheers, Dad. I'll shake your hand, but there's no video, so there's no point. Bloody lovely, as always. Well, um, it was. It's basically one of the sections in the book. I mean, if you think about this, the section, the six sections of the of the book of the present, the five stages of empire applied to all current countries and where they were. The process of polarization as competition hots up. And we can see that in America versus China, China being primary polarization and America secondary reactionary polarization, um, warfare and the evolution of new technologies, which with the accelerating arms race, which again was something I talked about all around. You're seeing even evolutions in warfare that are really quite staggering between the Americans and the Chinese and the Russians where they can. And then the next part of it was climate change. And the other part was disease and epidemics, which we've sort of seen through the whole um, process of the pandemic. And sadly, that prediction was based on increased arms race, the use of biogenetic weapons to make bioweapons viable, and that China would be the leader because it was the asymmetric energy of new development to go overturn the hegemonic American structure. And therefore, I predicted that the next panic would be a viral pandemic from a Chinese weapons laboratory. And sure enough, we've had that too. So... I wish I hadn't been so... So right. Must sentient. be tough. No, oh. actually, actually, no, I know you joke when you... It's actually, I wish I was really wrong. I wish I was wrong about the whole construct of the book because, you know, I have you and I have Horatio and Madeline and I deeply care about you and all our children's futures. And, and at the moment, we are unconscious and we need to change that. We need to realise where we are, how we got here, and make better decisions as to how to get out. And that's really what Breaking the Go to History was all about. Well, thank you, Dan, for a very somber tone that we leave on, but <laughs> a good one. David Murren specialises in using the past to predict the future, and is an accomplished public speaker, hedge fund manager, and market trader. To date, he's authored three books, Breaking the Code of History, Lives Led by Lions, and Now or Never. His fourth, The Road to Wars, is due to come out in 2021. He also writes a blog on his website, www.davidmerrin.co.uk, where you can find more on his life, views, and work.